It's been an interesting couple of weeks for hope. Uh, you may have noticed what's been uh, going on. You may not have noticed it really at all because of things that are going on in your own life. There seems that there may almost be like a, a matrix of how people might be feeling in terms of what's been going on uh, politically. Uh, you might have been sad that the UK voted uh, to leave uh, the EU, but you might be excited that that seems to now have triggered, uh, again, a, a fresh emphasis impetus for Scotland to become independent of the rest of the UK. Uh, you might have been excited uh, that Britain voted to leave the EU, but now you're worried because Scotland seems to, it might now leave uh, the UK. You might be happy about all of it, you might be sad about all of it, but the, the chances are you're feeling multiple things at once. It could be that you're just, this is just, you're just, this is fascinating, I find it fascinating, this is really interesting, but for you you might be thinking, well my job is really affected by this, my residency could be really affected by this. Or like I say, you might just, you've bet, you're like, I do not even have time for that. There is more than enough going on in my own life uh, that it's just impossible for me to even think about this. There's so much going on right here, right now. And these things help us to see how our hope is doing and where our hope is. It's getting this serious that the Queen, when she was in, uh, she was in Edinburgh yesterday, this is what she said. She said, at times like this, it's important that people, and particularly leaders, stay calm and collected, and that it's helpful for there to be times of quiet thinking and contemplation. Now, when the Queen, the most diplomatic woman on earth, is saying, you guys need to calm down and think, please, you know that something's going on. You know that it's tumultuous times. And these times can be helpful for us in that they help us to realise where our hope is or isn't. Last weekend was the Glastonbury Festival, the massive music festival down in England. And uh, obviously it happened during the referendum result. I'd imagine Glastonbury is the kind of place where there's like a 90-10 split, pro-remain versus uh, pro-to-leave. And on the Sunday evening, Coldplay were the band headlining, and it had been a very muddy festival. The whole, the whole weekend had been just a deluge of mud, and, and Coldplay came and headlined, and clearly did an amazing job of it. And uh, one of the writers I read said, I'm not, he said, I'm not always sure what the point of Coldplay is. I think it's this. He was saying, on that Sunday evening when we were covered in mud, and many of us miserable and concerned about the future, we needed this. We needed what Coldplay brought, which was essentially a lot of really fun, bouncing songs and an amazing light display and also free wristbands that like glowed in the dark according to the colours of the songs that the bands are playing. It was clearly an amazing show and I love Coldplay, but I couldn't find a source of hope in that. I found an enjoyable hour and a half's worth of music that was fun, but that was not a source of hope. And if you've ever examined any lyrics of Coldplay, you think there's not much hope in there because, well, there's really not much content in there. <laughs> it's just, it's not what they do. They write really lovely songs. They don't mean much. Wherever it is that you've been searching for your hope recently, I wonder how that's going. Today's the first day, uh, the first in our preaching series for this summer called How to Live a Life of Hope. And... That's what I want you to be able to do. That's what we want to help you do over the course of these coming weeks. We want to help you see through what is the current reality of your life to the ultimate reality and from that be able to see everything. What we see to come, our hope, affects everything, affects how we see things here and now 
today. It affects how we live. And that really is what Christianity is all about. A future hope affecting the present. And I, and I want to show you that. And I want to uh, really give you a survey today of the scale and the scope of our hope. Peter's going to talk about this as a living hope. That's really important. Some people have found their hopes have died over the last couple of weeks. Some people have realized there's suddenly a a shock and a sadness that's more than just, I didn't want it to go that way, but actually something I was hoping in has suddenly gone. Other people are finding a fresh excitement because something they thought wasn't going to happen could now possibly happen. These help us to identify where our hope is. I think hope is a sense of of peace within us about what's going on because of an excitement or an anticipation of what is to come. I wonder how that's going for you. Maybe you're going to realize today that your hope has been elsewhere and it needs to be somewhere solid. That your hope has been in things that were changeable and couldn't be relied on. That your hope maybe even is in things that are mortal, that have died, or that clearly have a very limited life expectancy to them. I want to offer you today a living hope. That's what the Bible promises us. Maybe you've been a Christian for years and you think, yeah, my hope's in Jesus. But you're realizing, actually, it's in several places, one of which is Jesus. And I want to help you today to, to recalibrate your life, to think afresh, to make sure that you are hoping in one thing only, the only living hope that there is. And we're going to be doing this uh, by looking at uh, Peter's first letter in the New Testament. There are two of them in there, we're going to look at the first. And Peter's letter, is uh, the structure of it is a classical letter. It's written in ancient times, and so it's written like ancient letters were written. It starts by saying who's writing it, and then it says who it's writing it to, and then there's a, a salutation, a greeting, and then there's a thanksgiving. And uh, that is the typical uh, classical structure of letters, and that's how Peter writes his letter. And so he starts by saying, hey, it's me, it's Peter. Now, even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard of Peter. He's one of the more famous uh, Christians uh, around, one of the most famous follower of Jesus. He was part of Jesus' original crew of disciples, uh, one of the first people to follow Jesus and then to uh, um, become an apostle of Jesus, chosen by Jesus to be part of his uh, inner leadership team and then to uh, spread the good news of Jesus all over the place. And Peter's famous for being really up for that, but also not necessarily very good at it. He, he experiences some of the great highs and great lows in the New Testament. Peter's the guy who walks on water when Jesus invites him to and then suddenly sinks when he realises what he's doing. Peter is the guy who says to Jesus, you are the Christ, you're the, you're the son of God. And Peter's the one who later says, I've no idea who that guy is, when Jesus has been arrested. Peter's the guy who takes a sword and swipes off the ear of someone attacking Jesus and then runs away in fear. And weeps when he denies Jesus. Peter's often the one who says the things that everyone else is thinking but gets into trouble uh, for saying them. Peter's also the one who, when he thought everything had gone wrong and goes back to a life of fishing, because it's all he knows, is called by the resurrected Jesus from the beach and restored. Jesus says, now I'm going to use you and work through you. Peter is the guy who knows Jesus, has lived the ups and downs of faith, And he's now a church leader when he's writing this letter. He's an established church leader. He's got things right and wrong, even after the resurrection as well, because we all do. Uh, But this is who he is. 
And then he says, uh, Peter, he talks about who he's writing to. We'll read this in a moment. Uh, they are basically a series of locations in northern Turkey. So Asia is one of the uh, places he refers to. It's not Asia as we would know it. It's Asia as they knew it, which was uh, a region in northern Turkey. People from some of the locations that Peter mentions were in Jerusalem when he had preached the first church sermon uh, that's recorded in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost after Jesus had ascended uh, up to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches the gospel and we're told there are people there from some of the regions that he mentions in this letter. So it may have been that some of these people became Christians when they heard Peter preach in Jerusalem uh, many years before. It may have been uh, that as part of the evangelistic uh, the, the, uh, uh, Christianity is really an uh, explosion uh, across the Roman Empire. People had gone to these cities, these regions that are mentioned, and told them about Jesus, and they'd become Christians. Uh, these people are living in the provinces. They're not in the cities. Uh, so there will have been towns and cities there, but these were much more people on the kind of outskirts of things. Peter's in Rome, we think. That's the center of the world. He's not writing to Athens or Corinth or Ephesus or Jerusalem. He's writing to a region and people who may have been uh, just in kind of small towns, uh, scattered uh, around there. Uh, they were Christians, and to be a Christian at any time in the Roman Empire was to get yourself in trouble of some sort or other. Uh, this is not a time of official, official persecution. Uh, that would come later and be much worse and much, much more horrible. Uh, but when these people gave their lives to Jesus, people around them thought it was odd. Uh, they thought that they had uh, forsaken uh, the gods and the emperor on whom really the Roman Empire uh, believed it relied. And to, to become a Christian was to say, no, I don't believe in any of that. And people thought that was unpatriotic, and they thought it was dangerous. and thought it could cause trouble uh, for the empire when people within the empire were saying no thanks uh, to uh, the Roman gods and to their emperor. So they will have experienced a degree of probably uh, more social challenge, uh, a bit of isolation, awkwardness amongst family, uh, possibly uh, gossip amongst them. Have you heard about them? They're doing this and this, magnified and twisted. That might have affected their trade and their livelihood, might have affected their social status. So that's the kind of thing these guys are going through at the time. Could have been much, much worse, but still was unpleasant and was difficult. And so this is Peter, a guy who's lived ups and downs, but knows Jesus, writing to people who are believing in Jesus, who have heard the message, experiencing a degree of trouble because of that. And so that's who he's writing to. And then he uh, gives a salutation. The classic uh, way of doing that uh, was uh, in Roman letters, they would say uh, a word kare, which would be like hail or greetings. Uh, but Peter goes for the Christian twist on that. They take the word kare, which means hail, and they turn it into charis, which means grace. And they say charis and also peace. Grace and peace, Peter says, be multiplied to you. So he doesn't just say, hey, how are you doing? He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then he gives his thanksgiving. And in Roman letters, this would typically be fairly short and is a kind of, sometimes might be a, like getting you up to speed with what's been going on in my life. I'm really grateful that this happened and this didn't happen. Uh, Peter does a lot more than that. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning. So if you've got a Bible, uh, you may want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's going to come up on the screen. And we're going to read it. And this is Peter's uh, greeting and salutation, and then his thanksgiving. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. 
may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your soul, uh, outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this is an exuberant thanksgiving. This is a guy who's going through some things, writing to some people who are going through some things that is full of hope and full of excitement. He is pumped about this. It's, it's almost a single sentence. He's just piling up verse after verse, thing after thing. Often uh, when you read the guides to the New Testament books, they'll say, and there's a careful structure here where this has followed this, has followed this. All the things I read about this had nothing to say about it like that. It's just Peter saying, and this is good, and this is great, and also this is wonderful, and this is brilliant too, and I love this, and I want to tell you this. If there's an exuberance uh, to it. We're meant to catch that. This is the truth of God. It should lead to us feeling like Peter's feeling right now. Wow, this is amazing. And that's what he's saying. Uh, that's what he is uh, wanting us to feel. It's a living hope from first to last. And as I read through it and, and sensed there's not really a structure here uh, for me to share with you, I, I felt actually to notice the number of times in which uh, Peter mentions things happening in the past or the present or the future. Uh, and so if we just look at the next slide, uh, you won't be able to see necessarily the words, but you can see all the stuff in red it can be put on a timeline. Uh, is Peter referring to events that have happened, uh, are happening, uh, will happen? And so I felt that was a good way of, of helping us to get an overview of the hope that Peter wants us to have, that he wants us to, uh, to experience and so that's what we're, we're going to do. We're going to go through, uh, really, from first to last. I'm going to start an eternity uh, that has been, and we're going to go through to eternity to come, which is obviously a fairly long period of time. Um, hopefully it's not going to feel like that. I think it's going to feel, uh, hopefully, uh, more exciting uh, than you would um, necessarily expect from a history lesson. But you need to know this, because Peter is telling them their story. He's telling us our story. When things go all over the place, because we're so used to our life really being focused in on us, we feel like we're the author of our story, we're the one telling it. Uh, we, we read things like the Invictus poem, I'm the author of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul and stuff like that. And we think, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make this happen. And Peter's going to show us that real hope comes when you realise that is not the case. That you are part of a story 
And the person writing that story is far greater than you and far more trustworthy and far better than you are at writing things for your life because he loves you more and he's smarter than you. And that's the story that Peter wants us to hear today. But he doesn't just want us to hear it. Oh, that's a nice story. I feel good about that. There's facts behind it. There's a reality to it. Peter's saying, I'm going to show you why you can be confident that this is the true story. So not that just we leave here today feeling a bit better because we've heard some nice things, but you can know why your hope, if you're a Christian, is a living hope. And you can know, if you're not a Christian, uh, you can know real hope today because that's what Jesus is offering you. And so that's, that's what we're going to go through. It's what we're going to look at. And we're going to start, therefore, before time. In the second verse, uh, Peter talks about the foreknowledge of God the Father. And before that, he talks about the elect exiles. This foreknowledge of God doesn't just mean that God knew about you beforehand, because God knows all things. It wasn't just like, I'm aware that that person's going to exist. But God was aware of his plans, and he made plans for you. And he determined what the course of your life was going to be. And he determined that you were, uh, if, if you, when you respond to Jesus, you look back and say, actually, this was the plan of God. This was the intention of God. It was with his foreknowledge that he saved you. You might be aware of how you became a Christian. And you think, well, I did this, and that person said this to me, and that person helped me with that. All true. But God already knew. More than he already knew, he'd already planned. When we feel hopeless, we feel like there's no plan going on. Peter says, this is a plan that began long ago. Far, far beyond before you, we can even comprehend. I, can, I mean, you can imagine like a long time ago, right? because you think, well, I guess it was like the period of my life, times a lot. But this is before there was time. It's a completely different level of previous. And so foreknowledge uh, gives us a great uh, hopeful place to start with this story. We're not the author. God is. And he started it knowing what he was going to do with it. He started confident with what he was going to do with it. And then Peter uses his word elect, which means to be chosen. He's saying you were chosen by God. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't you alone. It was the will of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God and the action of God that you, who he's writing to, became Christians, that you followed Jesus. It was God's intention and God's uh, action and God's completion that made it happen. And so you were, you were foreknown and you were elect. Now, sometimes this can seem quite a cold uh, way of seeing things. And uh, people, theologians who think this way are often described as being quite cold and quite calculating. And like, ah, yes, because before that, then that's happened. And so there it is. What can you do about it? But Peter doesn't let that happen because he talks about the foreknowledge of God the Father. Not God the planner. Not even God, as I've said, the author. Not even God the Lord Almighty, which is a legitimate name of God. But God the Father. This is a relational thing. You are brought, Peter says, into something where you know God, not just as the creator, though he is, not just as the ruler over all things, though he is, but as your father. You can experience the peace and security that comes of knowing that he is in charge and that he is working for your good because he loves you. Now, for some people, the word father has a lot of mixed meaning. And obviously, we, for most of us, we, de we define and understand fatherhood by how we were fathered, or even if we were fathered. 
And so if that's true for you, you need to dig into what the Bible says about God being a father. I guess just, you know, several things. It means you are loved. Biblical fatherhood means you are loved. It means you are cared for. It means someone has taken a responsibility for you and shaped you and, and grown you. It means you are taught. It means you are known. And it means you can flourish because fathers give and bring life as well as security and bring challenge as well as a wonderful love. And so foreknowledge and fatherhood come together here for Peter. It was planned by God and it was planned that he might love you and care for you. This is what's going on before time has even begun. In the heart of God, as he existed forever, in Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, knowing and loving and rejoicing in each other, also planned, planned what he was going to do for you, intended it. Then Peter moves us on into the Old Testament. And this is where the plan begins to come into fruition. He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Peter was a Jew, and so when he's talking about prophets, he's talking about Old Testament prophets. Uh, some of them wrote books in the Bible, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and others like that. Others were prophets. We have their actions recorded, Elijah and Elisha and others. And then there are yet others in the sense in which the Old Testament is entirely prophecy because it's speaking to us about something that is to come. And it's revealing to us who God is and what God is going to do. There is what's called typology in the Old Testament, which is where you see someone in the way they live, they are a sign of a greater one to come. So King David wins a battle when he goes out to fight against Goliath. He wins a battle that enables the rest of the Israelite army to follow in his wake. No one else is going to fight Goliath. David's like, I'll fight him, fights him, kills him, and then the rest of the army sweeps in after him. David isn't just doing that to show the might of God. He's doing that to show what Jesus will be like when he wins a victory for us over sin and death, that we might then follow in that victory. It's a typology. Moses leads his people out of slavery in Egypt through uh, the Red Sea into, eventually, the Promised Lands. He leads them out of slavery into freedom. Again, it's not just a demonstration that God is mighty and massive and able to do these things and that even the, the, the most powerful ruler on earth at that time, Pharaoh, can't stop it, although it is all those things. It's also pointing us forward to one who will set us free, not just from slavery in this life, but from slavery to sin and slavery to death and will bring us out of that into freedom forever. Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to that. When you really have to understand that that's, that's what's going on, even when, it's, when you're reading it and feeling the tension of it and feeling the frustration of it, and you're like, why do they keep doing things wrong? Why am I reading another page of God saying, this is all the things you've done wrong and this is what's going to happen? It's because we need a saviour. It's because we need someone to come and fix all this. We need someone to come and fix us. Peter says the prophets prophesied about it. They knew it, they felt it, and God spoke through them and said, it is going to happen. It wasn't just that God made a first plan, the first plan didn't work, and so, okay, I'm going to need someone else to come and sort this out. It was always the plan that Jesus would come. It was always the plan that we would have this living hope that he gives us. And all through the Old Testament, we read about that. And so the Spirit, uh, Peter says, the Spirit of Christ speaks through the prophets and says, something's coming, something's coming. 
And so even the most glorious things that you read in the Old Testament, you see mighty kingdoms, you see incredible adventures with God, wonderful victories, glorious uh, breakthroughs, you see nation-shaping miracles. And we're told we've got something better. A consistent testimony of the New Testament is that the Old Testament was great, but not enough. And we now have something better, Peter says. The Spirit of Christ was saying, to them, it's not even for you yet, it's for those to come. It's the superiority of that. As God plan, God's plan just ramps itself up and ramps itself up and gets ready. And so we see this in the Old Testament. And then, of course, we see it as Jesus comes to earth. The one prophesied, the one who alone can fix the mess we've made of ourselves and our life and the world. The one with divine power because he is God. The one who lives a sinless life. Peter talks about his sufferings. Peter was obviously one of Jesus' closest friends. Jesus uh, would have lived uh, amongst uh, his closest followers. That's what they did. They traveled together. They uh, ate together. Uh, they went on long journeys together. Peter saw Jesus up close. And his shorthand for that is to describe actually the sufferings of Christ. He saw what it was like for Jesus to be tired and weary. He saw what it was like for Jesus uh, to be hungry. He saw what it was like uh, for Jesus to be rejected. He saw what it was like for Jesus to allow himself to be arrested, and for Jesus to allow himself uh, to be uh, beaten and then crucified. Peter saw much of that. He was right there. He saw the sufferings. Of Christ, and yet he saw throughout all of that how Jesus always did it perfectly, how Jesus never sins, even when whole towns are raging against him. He never, uh, he never, uh, he never sins against them. He never takes the wrong attitude towards them. Peter sees how Jesus is has people come to him, all sorts of people, rich and powerful people, uh, seductive people, uh, needy people, accidentally unhelpful people, intentionally unhelpful people. Peter sees all of it and how Jesus somehow manages to welcome all of them, challenge all of them, live perfectly with all of them. It's not that it's, just, it's, not that it's natural, it's easy, it's, but Jesus does it. And Peter sees what it cost him. Then obviously he sees Jesus go to the cross. He sees the agony. There's some dispute as to whether or not Jesus, uh, Peter was actually there. So he may have been kind of far off. He wasn't at the foot of the cross with uh, John and Mary and some of the other women. It may have just been that he heard uh, others tell him about it later. But he knew that Jesus was agonized, that Jesus suffered. He knew that Jesus had nails put through his hands and his feet. It was uh, put into the position of crucifixion where he essentially suffocates alive for hours. And Peter understands as well that this physical pain, which I just, you can't even begin to understand it, like the worst pain you've ever experienced just going on for hours. But actually that's, that's not the worst thing that happens. We learn from our theology that actually what really happens is that God the Father then pours out his anger on his son for our sin. That's what happens at that moment. It's why the sky goes black. It's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there is a, a tearing between the father and the son. For all eternity, they've known each other, loved each other. They've never had any reason to find fault in one another. But at this moment, the father puts all of our sins, all of our mess, all of the alienation and the wickedness and the sinfulness and the stupidness, all of that gets put on Jesus. And God cannot look at sin and he's holy and he's righteous and he's just. And so he punishes sin and he punishes his son for it. 
And so Jesus experiences the alienation from God, the anger from God, the, the passionate opposition of God to all that is wrong. And he takes it. And it's poured out upon him. And when he's taken it all, he says, it is finished. And he dies. And Peter knew that Jesus had done that. At the time, he had no idea why. He tried to persuade Jesus not to do it. He tried to attack those who were arresting him. Peter's hope was that in Jesus, a great king, as someone who everyone would see right there and then and know that he was great. And Peter was going to help with that. And it was going to be amazing. But instead, the sufferings of Jesus. Then Peter realises this is where hope comes from. Because not just sufferings, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is where your hope comes from, Peter says. This is where your living hope is located, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a nice guy, giving us an example to follow. All other sources of hope on the earth are either dead or dying. You follow a philosophy, you follow a teacher, you follow a, a way of living. Either that teacher's already dead, or you, as you follow it, are going to die. But Christian, Christians don't have that. We have a living hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's alive right now. He has been triumphant and victorious over every enemy, over all evil and sickness and opposition. Jesus triumphed over it by the power of his perfectly lived life and the vindication of him being resurrected, being raised to new life. It's the moment where Jesus kind of says, I told you so. And it's where, the moment where God says, I told you, I told you so through him. It's the vindication of Jesus. It's not just a nice part of our theology. It is what happened, and it is what gives us the strength, it, it, what enables us to be saved. It's what enables us to come to God and to have true living hope. Because Jesus said, everything I say is true, you're going to know it because I'm going to die and then raise to new life. And then he does exactly that. So if you're wondering, why can I trust in Jesus? Why can I be sure of this? It's because he, he said I'd die and then be raised to, to life. He did that. If he did that, I'm going to take everything else he says is true as well. It's the vindication of him that therefore gives us hope. Gives us hope that if we put our trust in Jesus, we will be saved because that's what he promised. Gives us hope that if we say to God, I'm so sorry for the things I've done wrong, would you please accept Jesus' death in my place? He will, because Jesus said that's what we could do. And so it's a living hope, because Jesus is alive right now. And the subsequent, subsequent glories, Peter says, obviously they, they begin when people see Jesus resurrected. I mean, he shows glory before his death and resurrection, all the more so afterwards. And he is now reigning in heaven. He rules. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's a living hope. Okay, we move on. We move on to the birth of the church. Peter says, those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Well, Peter was the first one to do that. Acts, uh, the, the book that's written about the, the life of the first followers of Jesus, after he has ascended to heaven, Acts chapters 1 and 2 talk to us about how the Holy Spirit is sent to them and they then preach. Which sounds basically like that verse, because it is. 
Peter's saying, this is how the church begins. Because the Holy Spirit is then sent and we declare the good news. And it's not just for a small group in one small place to hear this hope. It's for everyone, everywhere. The Holy Spirit is now given to us. We, we know God with us. And then there's the believer's experience. So Peter then says, hey, I'm talking to you guys. And, and therefore he's talking to us as well as Christians. The believer's experience. Again, the same verse actually, those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Someone spoke to you. Someone told you. Someone said to you, let me, Jesus is alive. Someone explained to you, Jesus can forgive your sins. Someone promised you, if you put your trust in Jesus, you will have eternal life with him. Someone said those things to you. And when they said them to you, Something happened. And it's this. Verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. Sean, could you put the next slide up for me, please? Someone said those things to you, and there was a moment where you heard it, and in that moment, you believed. Now, how did that happen? Was it just that suddenly the facts were all in the right place, and so it made sense? Was it just that you were, I don't know, young and impressionable? Was it just that you needed to believe something, and so you said, okay, I'll believe in this? No. Peter says, you were born again. And who did this? He did this. He caused you to be born again. He put new life in you by his spirit such that suddenly you could see it. Paul describes this as, he says, it's like there was a veil in front of our eyes. We couldn't see and then God took away the veil and we saw. It's that big a deal. And it's that, again, done by someone else, not by you. You're like, when do I come into this story? And the answer is still not quite yet. Because it's the work of God that you belong to him. It's his work. It's him who did it. And it's such a massive thing. It's so complete a change in us that only the, be- the, me- the metaphor of new birth gives it justice. How can you understand what's happened? It's like you have been born again. It's like everything is new. Jesus says this himself in John chapter 3. It's like you have to be born again. Your life as it is cannot just be upgraded a bit or tweaked a bit or changed a bit. You have to be completely born again into this new life of God. And that is exactly what he does for us. It's totally new. You're like, well, I mean, I'm still me. I still look like me. I still act like me in some ways. Yes, but uh, there is a new life in you that is at work, conforming you into the image of Jesus, and bringing you to him. You have been born again. How much did you contribute to your birth? I imagine not that much. You certainly didn't choose to be born. But God caused you to be born again and it's done according to his great mercy not because he needs to make up the numbers not because you managed to persuade him not for any reason in and of yourself but in him his great mercy that's why you're a Christian if you're a Christian you're a Christian because God had mercy on you which means he didn't count that your foolishness your propensity to do things wrong against you but instead loved you and caused you to be born again. We must realise that that is God's attitude towards us in all of this. We sometimes think, I don't know how I managed to fool God. I managed to twist his arm or something like that and therefore he let me in. That is not how God has his heart towards you. He is always merciful. This really removes the anxiety of performance. really means that what are you hoping in? Yourself? What are you hoping in? Your good behaviour? 
What are you hoping in? That you're going to do enough you know, good things for God that he'll be satisfied that he let you in? Don't trust in those things. They'll knacker you out. And they're wrong. They won't fix it. You, you trust in his mercy. His mercy and his love towards you. There's then the sanctification of the Spirit, which is this work that begins in us straight away. In the, God's Holy Spirit comes into us and gets at work in us and begins to change us and to make us more like God. Uh, and that's, which is his intention, this, this word, this phrase, sprinkling with his blood, which is to say that Jesus' blood is what has paid the price for us to come into God's presence. It's reflecting a scene from the Old Testament where a covenant was made between God and his people, a sacrifice was made, and then the blood was sprinkled on the people, and it was a blood that cleansed them and said, you can come in. And so that has happened for you. If you're a Christian, you are cleansed by Jesus' blood. We sung about it earlier. All your sin, all your filth, all your foolishness, it has been cleansed by God. The Bible says, though your, uh, your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as, you will be made white as snow. It's the blood of Jesus that does that. And it happens in a moment when you put your trust in Jesus. All these things happen in that moment of salvation. You don't even know it's happening, but God is doing it. And then Peter goes on to describe their present experience. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now Peter's seen Jesus. But Peter also heard Jesus say, blessed are those who are not seen and yet believe. And Peter says, you guys are blessed because you haven't seen him yet but you've encountered him and you believe him and you know him and so you love him. You're not just giving a mental assent to this. You're not just saying, yes, fine, great, satisfied with that. You love him. You are thrilled with him. He is exciting you. He is making you feel full of relief and joy and happiness and passion and excitement because he has done these things for you. He has given himself to you. He has died for you. He's been raised to new life that you might be saved. How wonderful. As you've read about him, you just think, he just is brilliant. He's just brilliant all the time. Everything you see him do and say, he's being perfect about it. And I love him for that. You love him, Peter says. There's a strong implication here that you are spending time with him yourself. This isn't just a, you go along to something where people say this and you're like, yeah, that's true for me too. But you know him for yourself. This is possible for us because he's given us his word through which he speaks. He's given us his spirit who comes to us now, the presence of God. You love him, Peter says. You rejoice. But also, there's some suffering. He says, you rejoice and also you're grieved. This is absolutely normal Christianity. When these things happen to us, we sometimes think, what is going on? When everything that's happening in politics, we're like, what is going on? Like 2016, come on. What is going on this year? It is normal Christianity to be perplexed and rejoicing, to be suffering and rejoicing, to not know what's going to happen next and rejoicing. Because this story dominates the chapters. You feel the chapter, like, this is what's going on. I don't know how it's going to end. I'm going to tell you how it's going to end in a moment. But you know what has already been done for you. You know who he is. How does this happen? You who by God's power are being guarded. You're like, okay, well now I step up, right? Finally, we've gone through the past, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, uh, through the church, to me. So now I've got to play my part. Well, kind of. God is going to be guarding you. That faith 
is a gift of God. It's your trust in him. That's where we're involved. I believe you, God. This is hard. I believe you. I believe you're good. I believe you're working things out. I believe that you are alive, that you are real. I don't quite understand what's going on, but I believe these things. That is the work of God to guard you. It's his power that guards you. By faith, you access his strength. He works in you as you believe him. You're guarded, which means, I guess, a couple of things at once. There's a sense of kind of being shielded. He's stopping things getting to you that would be too much for you. I know sometimes you're like, I'm not sure that necessarily happened. I feel some things that were too much. Actually, no, in his amazing power and grace, God is preventing too much from happening to you. That's why you can pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, because he guards you. He will stop those things coming through. But also, he guards you like sometimes it feels people are being guarded by people and they're like, I thought you were protecting me. Like, I am protecting you. I'm also, you're not going anywhere. It's that guarding as well. The Bible says none can pluck us from his hand. And that means no one can come in and take us. It also means we can't get out. He's got us. You're being guarded by God right now. His power at work in you. It's, we access it through faith. We ask him for strength. We say, God, I cannot do this, but I believe you will give me the strength to do this. Lord, I'm just insufficient, but I believe that you can give me the sufficiency I need. Your enemies can take everything from you, but not this. Final section. The last time and forever. So Peter then goes on from their present experience to a time to come. He says, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming back. He is returning. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. He is coming back. Peter believes this because Jesus said he was going to do it. And Peter's not going to make the same mistake twice of not believing when Jesus says he's going to do something. You go, rise from the dead. I'm not sure. Okay, you did it. I'm going to come back. All right. You can be confident in that. He said he's going to do it. He is returning. He will come back and there will be praise and glory and honour for him, that, for all that he has done. But also we get to be caught up in that as well. It's a party that you will share in if you're a Christian. You will enjoy and rejoice in it at the revelation of Jesus. Again, unveiling. There he is. The whole world will say that. I know sometimes it feels like in your office, in your street, in your house, you're like, man, no one else around here sees him. There will be a day when everyone will see him. He will come back and the faith that may be causing you problems right now will bring you into eternal joy later. Your salvation will be finally fully revealed in that last time. This is where your hope was. People say right now, why do you believe in this? How does this work out for you? And you explain it the best you can if you're a Christian. You'll know. So you explain it the best you can. There's still got something of a disconnect. And even for yourself, you're like, it's not all fully here. It isn't that I've got a nice house and a happy family and everything that I want. It isn't that. It's that I'm believing in something to come. And Peter says it will be revealed and then it will be seen and then you'll see fully what you have put your hope in. And only then will life make sense. If you feel dislocated right now, you should. If you're a Christian, you feel like this is, I just, I'm not, I don't feel like I fit fully. You don't. Because you're being conformed to something new, something that hasn't yet been fully revealed but is on its way. That causes difficulty right now. Again, if you're not a Christian, you're like, why are they like that? It's because something's coming. 
and you really want to be more in line with that than you want to be in line with what's going on right now. And an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Again, you're going to receive it. Who's going to give it to you? The Lord who planned it before time began and who won it on this earth and who opened your eyes to it and who kept you so that you could receive it will then give you an inheritance. The Bible talks about heaven coming to earth, heavenizing earth, as it were. Everything that is wrong being dealt with, everything that is old being renewed, everything uh, that is faded being freshened up and made gloriously new forever. It's right to you know, make good plans for this life. It's good to be wise in this life. It is far more better. It's far better to invest in eternity to come, in the future hope that is imperishable. It's not going to... It's not going to... It, you know, like organic life, it falls apart, doesn't it? It goes wrong. We're, we're born almost to die. You have your kind of early peak, and then it's almost like, well, I'm just getting worse and worse and worse, and that's what life feels like that. Even the good things we experience can feel like that. They, they, they crumble, they fade. Well, this is imperishable, and this is unfading. This isn't going to fade. The perfect day is never followed by the annoying Monday after it. They, they, these things aren't going to happen anymore. There's, there'll be no edge to things. You're like, oh, it's good now, but just you wait. No, no, it's good, it's good now, just you wait. It's going to get even better. It's hard for us to understand this. I think that's why Peter uses so many negatives here. It's like, it's not going to be like you understand. It's not going to be like you understand. It's not going to be like you understand. You're used to things perishing. You're used to things being defiled, ruined, messed up, compromised. You're used to things fading. The longer you live, the more you'll get used to those things. Peter says, the longer you live, the closer you get to something that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is so much better than everything we have known now, that is every good now multiplied by infinity and the full goodness of God, that has no compromise of sin or anything like that. It's better than anything we could be given in this life. And that's our hope, and that's what we are aiming for. And that enables us to live in these days when they're hard, when, they, when we struggle, when it's difficult, because this is what's coming. So long as we hold fast in our faith, so long as we hope at all times, this is what is coming for us. This is the living hope that we have been promised by God. This is the living hope that you are being offered by Jesus today if you will only take it by faith. Believe him in what he said and in what he has done and is going to do. This will be yours. And this affects everything. This changes how we live our entire lives, and that's what the rest of Peter's letter and the rest of our series will be like. My job today has been to show you the hope. The rest of the series will be like, what does that hope look like when I go to work? What does that hope look like with my family? What does that hope look like in all these different situations that I'm going through? But this is the hope. I've sketched it out. I had a brief time to look at it. It is deeper and far more wonderful. But I want you to hope in it and believe in it. In Jesus Christ, alive, risen from the dead, a living hope.